Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning and welcome. Here we are for Wednesday's theme talk. We're gathering each morning this week to consider this theme of walking the talk, the living of our lives with greater integrity. And today I'm lighting our chalice for every one of us who has had ideals and then failed to live up to them. For each person who knows their own wrongdoings and the many more of us who perhaps never did quite realise what we'd done. I light our chalice in awareness of the reality that we are imperfect beings living in an imperfect world. And I'm lighting that chalice for our yearnings, for the yearnings of our hearts that know so well our wounds, our scars, and our broken places. And I'm lighting it for the search for healing and wholeness again and again and again. Welcome to you all. And we're going to sing. We've slightly changed the order this morning. We're going to sing hymn number 70 in that purple uh, hymn book. It's called I Wish I Knew How. We have got some percussion instruments here that if they do not come out at least once at summer school, they are mournful all winter long. <laughs> Do you want to play through once and those of us can know it will put it loudly? 
I also need maybe just a few, really few people to sound like an upset donkey. <laughs> sound like a, a bunch of slightly thoughtless, busy or distracted people. Hmm. Yeah. That's excellent. Okay. You don't know what that's like, Sarah. It sounded so natural. One day, on a farm, a long time ago, a farmer's donkey fell into an abandoned well. Yes, the donkey cried piteously. Just like that, for hours. tried to figure out just what to do about the donkey stuck in the well. Finally, he decided that that donkey was getting on a bit. He wasn't able to carry the heavy loads on the farm that he'd used to carry. And that well, well, that really needed covering up anyway. It just wasn't worth trying to rescue the donkey. <laughs> donkey to die slowly. <laughs> so the best solution that he could come up with was to get his neighbours over and ask for their help in shuffling soil on top of that donkey to fill up the well. <laughs> to be honest, the neighbours didn't make those kind of shocked horrified sounds at all. They did the, oh, we're a bit fed up, we've got loads of other things to do, oh, all right, if you insist. Nim, 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 nim. They did what they were asked. They grabbed a shovel and they started shoveling earth and stones on top of that poor donkey that was stuck in the well. Now that donkey may have been past his first flush of youth, but he was no fool. He knew what that farmer was planning, and he didn't like it one little bit. And as the earth hit him and the stones, he wailed and complained very loudly indeed. In a way that only donkeys can. But a few shovelfuls of soil later, the donkey quietened down completely. The farmer peered down into the well and was astounded by what he saw. With every shovelful of earth that was hitting that donkey's back, the donkey would shake it off, tread it down, <laughs> and take a step up. He was treading down the earth. Bit by bit, he was slowly getting closer and closer to the top of the well. And before too long, that old well was full of earth and the donkey was able to step out and trot proudly away. 
Jim have offered today to, to be their donkey, <laughs> trotting proudly away. <laughs> the other theme speakers to come now and help me with a reading by the Reverend Dr. Rebecca Parker, uh, Unitarian Universalist uh, theologian, and uh, she has written about In the Midst of a World. In the Midst of a World, marked by tragedy and beauty. There must be those who bear witness against unnecessary destruction and who, with faith, stand and lead in freedom with grace and power. There must be those who speak honestly and do not avoid seeing what must be seen of sorrow and outrage, of tenderness and wonder. There must be those whose grief troubles the water while their voices sing and speak refreshed worlds. There must be those whose exuberance rises with lovely energy that articulates Earth's joys. There must be those who are restless for respectful and loving companionship among human beings whose presence invites people to be themselves without fear. There must be those who gather with the congregation of remembrance and compassion, draw water from old wells, and walk the simple path of love for neighbour. There must be communities of people who seek to do justice love kindness, and walk humbly with God, who call on the strength of soul force to heal, transform, and bless life. There must be religious witness.
really to best explore the meaning of that story of the donkey stuck in the well, maybe we have to understand that there probably is within most of us the potential cruelty and lack of vision to decide that the best thing to do is to bury a stuck donkey alive. And that there are times in most lives when we find ourselves stuck, sometimes forever, in tight and uncomfortable places. And that there is within us a determined spirit that has the power to stamp on that dirt and transcend those difficulties and through stamping find ways out of our and the world's dilemmas. This morning's talk focuses on one of my favourite topics, our imperfections. <laughs> and as, in some kind of a structure, I'm going to take us through an exploration of some of the roots of our dilemmas, the situations we find ourselves in today, some possible ways forward for ourselves and for our communities and for our Unitarian and Free Christian movement. On Monday, we heard, didn't we, of brave worshippers who fought for religious freedom and the right to build their own chapel. We heard of the Rochdale pioneers who founded the cooperative movement that did so much to promote social justice for workers and all those who were struggling in any way in society. We know of the campaigns that led to universal education and vastly improved health care for all in this country. Onwards and upwards forever. That was the promise of social progress of our forebears. Yet we know, don't we, that there were a few discrepancies even way back then. We speak of, of Unitarianism's links with the um, abolition movement to end slavery. And yet we know, don't we, through the briefest of explorations of the history of colonialism, it tells us the uncomfortable truth that the wealth that helped to build a lot of our church buildings created the endowments that keep many of our congregations financially buoyant even today, that wealth was created through our country's colonial past on the exploitations of nations abroad, their people and their resources. And let's have a show of hands. How many of us have ever said how proud we are of Unitarianism being the, the movement that first trained a woman minister here in this country? It's, it's one of our favourites, isn't it? And yet... I also like telling the story of that first woman ministry student, Gertrude von Petzold, at Oxford, being shunned by her fellow Unitarian students, those men who just really could not bear the thought that a woman was training alongside them. They certainly weren't going to sit at the dinner table with her. So walking the talk, living congruently with our values, believe me, it's always been a challenge. The issue is not new. And it's not just a Unitarian issue. It's what it is to be human. We have the intelligence to know when something is wrong. We have the imaginations to know that things could be better. We've made great strides in human development in so many areas. And, well, look at the mess that we're in. Here we are, imperfect beings living in an imperfect world 
where tough things happen and things don't always go according to plan and there often isn't a happy ever after where the donkey trots out of the room. For every metaphorical donkey that finds the way to tread itself out of a well, many more get to be buried. There is a power, though, in acceptance. We are imperfect beings living in an imperfect world. I wonder if we could just say that together, all of us. We are imperfect beings living in a perfect world. Perhaps we can talk later how that feels. Now I ask you to imagine this earth on which we rest. Beneath this floor, the earth. Beneath the earth, the rock. This is a geographer's version of the, what was it, total perception vortex? Perspective Perspective (laughs) vortex that Linda introduced us to in our service on Sunday. And it does not disappear the moment we eat that slice of banoffee cheesecake at dinner. (laughs) When you think of how big our planet is and how long it has been here, our individual lives may seem very brief and either therefore insignificant or perhaps hugely important, depending on which side of the bed we got out of this morning. We have the privilege this moment of resting here in Great Hucklow upon a special geological feature. We're on a line where what is known as the light and the dark meet. To one side, the millstone grit that makes Derbyshire a favourite spot with rock climbers the world over, and to the other, the limestone that allows the cave systems to form, the fossils that uh, we've spotted in the walls around here. These cave systems beneath us are so extensive and so challenging that Derbyshire is famous amongst cavers the world over. Years ago, when I worked with disturbed teenagers, we would spend a day a week on outdoor pursuits. I have dangled anxiously (laughs) at the end of ropes all over Derbyshire, (laughs) both above and below ground. The outdoor day was the easiest of the five days a week we teachers spent with those youngsters. So disruptive could they be, so unwilling to sit still, so anti-education in any form that had been tried with them before. And we became adept at finding new ways to intrigue them. And one of our best ways was to focus on the gory, the shocking, and the downright unpleasant. They liked disasters. And since we so often spent time caving around Castleton, it's perhaps no surprise that we told them the story of a 20-year-old man called Neil Moss, who in 1959 became stuck in a rock fissure a thousand foot underground beneath Castleton, a narrow, previously unexplored shaft, part of the peak cavern system. Neil was a philosophy undergraduate from Oxford. He was a very experienced caver. Various rescue attempts were made, but failed. He fell unconscious and died two days after getting trapped down there. 
His father decided that rather than risk further lives, they should seal the fissure with concrete, and his son's body lies to this day deep beneath those Derbyshire hills. To be trapped. To be trapped is a powerful and scary image for us. Very few of us, thank goodness, have the misfortune to find ourselves trapped in potholes underground or falling into disused wells. But everyday life? Dutch theologian Henri Nguyen, in one of his most popular books, Can You Drink the Cup? He writes powerfully of the potential entrapments of our lives, the addictions, the compulsions, the obsessions that can rule us, as well as the entrapment of our own mortality. He writes, In whatever direction we run, death is there, never leaving us completely alone. Rarely a day passes in which we are not worried about the health of a family member, a friend or ourselves. Not a day passes when we're not reminded of those snares of death. Now when I read Christian theologians such as Nguyen, even though his theology is, is not usually mine, I can sometimes feel envious of his certainty. His faith is clearly a source of great comfort for him. He's got something to offer. It's hardly surprising, is it? You don't get to be number one religion in the world without a theology. <laughs> without, without a fairly substantial discourse about the nature of the divine. You don't get to be number one religion unless your theology has considerable crowd appeal. And any of you who've tried to write about or teach about Christianity might agree with me that it has a very complex and indeed at times contradictory theology. But at its core, it contains such comfort for people. And I think that's because through the living person of Jesus, our brokenness as human beings is acknowledged and accepted. I remember once discussing a book called The Jesus Mysteries. I don't know if anybody's come across that yeah. book. Um, discussing it with a friend. It's by Timothy Freaky and another author whose name I can't remember. Um, and it explores the possibility that Jesus, the man, never existed, but was rather the human stroke God figure at the centre of one of the pagan mystery cults that were in abundance in the Greco-Roman world of early Christianity. It's an interesting book, if you like that sort of thing. But for me, it sort of missed the point, or, or perhaps my friend missed the point, that Christian theology has been successful precisely because it speaks to our human condition. It acknowledges our human failings. It offers us atonement and salvation through God in human form, Jesus Christ. And it's actually a theology that helps people whether Jesus lived or not. That isn't the point. And so when I reflect on us Unitarians, I wonder sometimes if we have a theology robust enough to help us with the dark places of being human. If in that early positive message of striving for social improvement, onwards and upwards forever, 
Maybe we somehow got stuck ourselves. If part of living with greater integrity is to accept all the ways that we fall short of the mark, all the times we fail to live up to our ideals, well, what kind of theology can help us with that process? And how can we as a movement encourage people to take on specifically Unitarian and free Christian theological exploration suitable for the 21st century in which we live? A theology that embraces our oh-so-human condition of frailty and donkey-like stubbornness, of meanness and fixed thinking, and all those times most of us know so well of failure and despair. A theology as well that can perhaps support us through the times when we just want to beat ourselves up. In most of us there's a character, I think, like Dobby the house elf in the Harry Potter books, <laughs> who famously explained to Harry one day, bad Dobby, bad Dobby. Dobby is always having to punish himself for something, sir. Dobby will have to shut his ears in the oven door for this. <laughs> and so I ask you to take a moment now to think of the things that you criticise yourselves for. Is there a critical voice in you that is regularly pointing out your failings? And if you want, I invite you just to turn to the person next to you and to just share those in that spirit of, of hearing without judging. What are some of the things that we beat ourselves up for? What are the things that we criticise ourselves for? Just take a moment and have a wriggle break as well. <laughs> time for a mass confession this morning. <laughs> I, just, I just 
wonder, is there any brave soul who wants to just shout out one of the things that they're, one of their favourites, one of the things they criticise themselves for? Eating. Eating, yeah, eating. Talking too much. Being lazy. <laughs> Leaving things till the last minute. Task obsessive and ignoring what's around me. Having a gun, that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Being uncaring. Thinking that I know better than everybody else. <laughs> we could go on and on, couldn't we? We literally could spend the rest of the day doing this, just actually hearing each other and all the things that we criticise ourselves for. It is quite frightening sometimes, I think, to actually realise the depths of our self-loathing. And there's something about needing to acknowledge our failings, but not get stuck in them. Can you feel the difference? And doesn't that go for our communities, as well as for us as individuals? When we know how much a Unitarian community can offer the world, it really can be very dispiriting to realise that we're not always as welcoming or as open or as diverse or as dynamic or as tolerant or as radical as we say we are on those leaflets and those notice boards. We fall short of our ideals, both individually and collectively, again and again and again. And when that critical voice has had enough of getting at us as an individual, what does it do? It turns around and starts on everybody else. <laughs> and it starts on our communities. I once described to an Anglican friend the vitriolic way that I'd heard people in our movement speaking about our congregations, about our congregations committees, about our district associations and the GA. And I know that I've said those things myself. He laughed and said that he'd heard just the same in his church. And then we began to wonder if it might be something to do with churches themselves that in our very yearning towards goodness, do we inevitably reveal all the murky underbelly of what it is to be human and living with one another? What on earth can we do about this? We can learn something from psychologists. I've never forgotten the... Uh, the uh, family therapist who introduced me to the work of Winnicott and he was the one who mentioned good enough parenting that that was all that we can aim for as parents just good enough what about good enough human beings what about good enough congregations what about a good enough general assembly even if that's not too much to <laughs> <laughs> I think we can also encourage a more robust and mature attitude to being in community in the first place putting up with that which we dislike loving our enemies or at least starting to learn from them 
and being grateful for that learning that they bring. I was always struck by the story of um, Gurdjieff, who I discovered this morning is a Russian mystic and spiritual teacher of the late 19th to early 20th century, <laughs> who, who had a community in France. <laughs> I have actually tried to read one of his books. He's interesting. <laughs> but, but the story I like the best is, is of this community in France where, um, well, you know this from your congregations, don't you? From time to time, somebody difficult turns up. <laughs> or somebody who, for some reason or another, you don't like. Well, there was a mega version of that person turned up in Gurdjieff's community. He caused absolute mayhem. He was a total pain to live with. Imagine the relief to the rest of the community when he said he was upping sticks and going off to Paris, that he'd had enough of them. And they all went, phew. Anyway, a few months later, Gurdjieff had been away on one of his tours. And when he came back, he came back with that same man in tow. He'd gone to Paris and he'd brought him back. And as if that wasn't bad enough, he was actually paying the man to stay in the community <laughs> that time. And when the other uh, community members you know, remonstrated with Gurdjieff, he said, I'm paying him because he's the best teacher that you'll ever get. Learn to be with your enemies. Face your dislikes. Learn from the difficult ones in a community. We might experiment from time to time with issues of responsibility. I went on a workshop once. I've had an interesting life, actually, when I think about it. I went on a workshop once based on a Polynesian practice that encouraged us to take 100% responsibility for things that were troubling us. This early in the morning, that may not have the effect on you that it had on me on, on that workshop. I was just going through a, you know, a painful divorce, and I got to the point of thinking, I'm 50% responsible for the ending of my marriage. <laughs> I felt I'd made huge strides. And then to spend a weekend with people who said, you're 100% responsible for this and that and everything in your life just, just for a moment we're not going to get feedback on this just take a, a moment just to think in silence about something that you find difficult in your life <coughs> and then just in your own mind and heart try out saying I am 100% responsible for this Perhaps something, again, for us to talk about in small groups at another time. But I think for some issues in life, it's remarkably powerful to do that. I'll give you an example. What about if instead of complaining about our Unitarian and Free Christian movement that we seem to both love and loathe in varying amounts, what if we declared our 100% responsibility for this movement. I'm intrigued to know what actually would happen if we could live that level of responsibility in life. There was also a wonderful um, mantra that we were meant to say for the rest of our lives, which went, 
you know, whilst you were thinking of the difficult thing that you were trying to take responsibility for, or the thing that had hurt you in life. And the mantra goes, I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. That's your Polynesian life prescription for this morning. <laughs> Another thing we might do is actually to look around at other religious groups and, and learn from them how they're handling their yearning towards their ideals and their falling short. It, I don't know if you know the Benedictine vows, you know the usual vows in a monastery of um, chastity, poverty and obedience. The, the Benedictine's um, vow is to obedience, stability and conversion of manners. And there is something in that about how we actually get on in community. The actual politeness the, the need for genuine, open-hearted politeness and kindness to other human beings and for the finding of stability within ourselves. A stability that I suspect would help us with that amazing reactivity that we all have as human beings. That the minute we find something we don't like, we react against it. How amazing it would be if instead we actually stood still and breathed for a moment and examined our own responses. And I know I'm biased, but of everything that we Unitarians and Free Christians do, I actually think that it is the, the depth of personal exploring and sharing in our small group work and in weeks such as this that is a really special feature that we have. It's something very precious that I want to to hold on to and to continue to, to work with. Is there a way that we can bring that into our governance and ways of being in community in the way that the Quakers and the Society of Friends very much use the qualities of their faith to direct how they live in community with one another? I'm not sure that we've managed to achieve that yet. And we can share, can't we, the depths of our lostness, our trappedness. Again, there's another story from Henri Nguyen of um, um, a priest in the making um, at, at seminary, at college. And uh, he, he, there was a very wise priest there who he wanted to be his confessor. And um, so the young man said to the wise one, will you be my confessor? Will you do that? And he agreed. He said, yes, come to my room in an hour's time. And they sat and they talked. And it came to the point where that young man really felt it was time that his confession should be heard. But to his surprise, instead, the older man proceeded to tell him all the difficult and bad things of his own life, of the, the women he loved when he shouldn't have, of the thing he'd stolen, of the bad words he'd said, and of all the ways that he'd fallen short. He went on and on and on. 
And only when he got to the end of the story of his own failings did he turn to that young man and say, now you know my failings, maybe I can be your confessor. David Darling, who's in my congregation and and was um, a Franciscan monk, um, speaks of the, the words that come at the end of confession. When you've had your confession heard, go in peace. The Lord has put away your sins. And pray for me, a sinner too. There is something in that acknowledgement that we are all flawed, that I find very powerful. I just wonder for us whether we need the power of a sacrament. Is our lighting of a chalice flame enough to give us the strength to actually find a really strong and malleable connection with the divine? I don't know. And finally, we, perhaps we can get into actions in our lives, as clearly we are all doing anyway. It doesn't matter, does it, the size of the canvas on which we're working. We can knit squares. We can give out food parcels. We can give to collections. We can acknowledge the enormity of the world's dilemmas, the power of our own despair, and then we can help one another. We can empower one another to get into action and do something. One of my favourite books of theology was written by John Caputo, who wrote a book, What is God? And um, in in that he explores St. Augustine's idea of God as love and, and goes on to explore, therefore, God is an action, a verb, not a noun. And that is what we are called as human beings to be and to do, active, in some small way, however, some way that calls to us. So living lives of greater integrity? I don't know. Maybe, maybe it comes down to reminding ourselves of the power of simple human kindness to ourselves and to others. Maybe it comes down to allowing the power of love to flow through us and to seek the blockages that stop that love. Maybe it comes down to offering a helping hand to all those we find trapped, stuck, or lost along the way. Because in that way, a similar hand might just reach out to us when we need it most. Amen.